Welcome to the preaching podcast of Life Point Church. We're so glad you've joined us here. If you're ever in the Baton Rouge area, please stop by. We'd love to meet you. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, please visit our website at golifepoint.com. Thank you, Pastor, for this honor to get up here and speak to this wonderful church. I'm, don't take it for granted. I'm thankful. Judges 7, 13 through 15. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Sounds like a dream I had the other day. Then his companion answered and said, this is nothing else. Wow, this is a pretty smart companion. I don't know how he got to this assumption, but way to go, companion. This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hands. And this morning, for just a few moments, I want to talk to you on this idea, this subject, sleeping giants. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this opportunity to step into your presence. I pray, God, that your word would go forth. Let every heart be open. Let every mind be open to what your word has to say today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. 2007. Does anybody remember 2007? Feels like just yesterday. It's hard to believe that it's been 19 years since Y2K. But, you know, 12 years ago was 2007. Just one season removed from their latest Super Bowl victory, Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots found themselves in rather familiar waters. He was at the end of some scrutiny for cheating. Like many off-seasons for this great coach, many of his assistants went on to get jobs as head coaches for many teams throughout the league. And as Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots prepared for what was going to be another formidable year, all of a sudden, everything went awry. Bill was accused of filming all the practices of the New York Jets. One of his ex-assistants, Eric Mangini, was now the head coach of the Jets. So I'm assuming he must have had some inside information. And so he calls into the head office and he says, Hey, NFL, I'd like you to check out something really quick for me. I think there's somebody at our practice facility filming our practices. And sure enough... I guess Eric Mangini might have had some, like I said, inside information. And it was true. There was somebody filming their practices. Now, Belichick, in all of his wisdom, tried to feign innocence, saying things like, I thought it was okay as long as we didn't watch the footage during the game that we played against the Jets. Belichick would personally be fined $500,000. The team would be fined $250,000. And they lost their first round draft pick 
for the 2008 draft. See, the scrutiny behind this tactic was not that they were invading privacy or that they were trespassing on the New York Jets' territory or that there was an unidentified man from New England in New York. The issue of the whole scandal was that New England was giving themselves an unfair advantage. They were watching the moves uh, that their their competitors were making, seeing the way that they acted and reacted. They had inside information on their enemy, their their competition, and how that competition was going to play against them. And if you know how your competition or your enemy is going to act, it gives you time to plan and prepare yourself against it. That year, New England would go on to win all 16 games of the regular season. They would win two of their playoff games and only be the second team in history to go undefeated. But eventually, they would come up against the buzzsaw, Eli Manning, and lose in the Super Bowl. A lot of teams figured that New York Jets were probably not the only team that got film taken on them. But there was no more evidence. I guess Bill was quick to destroy it. I don't know. They were playing with inside information, and when you can have some insight into what your opponent is about to do, when you can have information about the tactics of your enemy, you put yourself in a prime position to win. See, the, the, the scripture I read this morning, it sounds very familiar to what Bill Belichick was doing to the New York Jets. Gideon, who was a judge of Israel, Israel had found themselves in captivity, and finally they had had enough, cried out to God in repentance and said, please save us from our captors. And Gideon was called out behind the threshing floor. And he he figured, who am I? How am I supposed to do this, God? And and God assembled an army for him, 32,000 men. And God whittled it down and said, you have too many, Gideon. If you win this war, you're going to think you did it and I didn't do it. And so God whittles this army down to 300. And Gideon, at that point, is looking at his 300 men saying, yeah, I don't know if this is going to work. But God sent him on a little reconnaissance mission. Sends him into the enemy's camp and he kind of pulls out his, you know, glass cup, if you will, and puts it against the door and listens in on the enemy's camp. And so he hears this crazy story, this dream about a a, a loaf of bread rolling down a hill and crushing the camp of the the Midianites and, 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 and and he hears, this, this, is, this is Gideon. This is Gideon. They're going to kill us all. And so Gideon runs back to his army, like it says in verse 15, and says, we've got this, y'all. We're ready to win. He had some inside information. He had the tactics of the enemy in his hand. And so he was able to go to the army of Israel and say, we have nothing to fear. God is on our side. The enemy's afraid. And we are going to victory. Now, I understand we are not playing a football game. No, no matter how much fun football Sunday is around here, we're not playing a football game. We're not just trying to figure out what our competition down the street is doing. We're, and, you know, we're not in a literal battle like Gideon found himself. But the truth is, as Pastor just said, we are in the midst of a spiritual war. 
You are in the midst of a spiritual war. Whether you want to admit it or not, whether you want to close your eyes and pretend it doesn't exist, that's great. It still exists. It's there whether we like it or not. And the enemy of your soul hates you. He hates you. He's a good devil. He does a good job. He knows what he's doing. He's after you. He's after your family. He's after your kids, after your church. He's doing everything he can to destroy you and your walk with God. Peter told us in his book, his letter, in the end of the New Testament, that our adversary, our opponent, our enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. He's doing all he can to set you off course, to derail you, to derail your family, derail your children, derail your marriage. He is using every tactic he knows to try and cause discourse between you and God and you and your church. But this morning, I believe whether you're here physically or whether you're listening to this on the podcast at your workplace, on your drive to work, anywhere you're at, I have a word from God for you today. I want to bring some insight into a few of the tactics that the enemy tries to use against you and I that tries to get between you and God and what God has called you to do. And when we have insight into our enemy's tactics, it gives us an upper hand in the battle. First of all, one tactic the enemy is going to use, he's going to try to convince you that your dreams are dead. He's going to tell you that you have nothing worth going to church for. What are you doing? That promise God gave to you, that dream God gave to you, that's behind you. Joseph was a dreamer. Right in the middle of Genesis, the very first book of the Old Testament, we meet this man by the name of Joseph who was a young man and a dreamer. He was a little bit egotistical probably because he wakes up bright and early Probably no one's had their coffee yet. They're all sitting around that morning table, and he says, Hey, guys, I had a dream about y'all last night, and you were all bowing down to me. Hey, pass the peanut butter. You know, like, thanks, Joseph. I'm going to go back to bed now. This is a good Monday. But Joseph was a dreamer. He had a dream. God was going to raise him up, and, and his brothers would bow to him. His parents would bow to him. And obviously this caused some discourse within his family. Joseph was hated by his brothers for the fact that he was so loved by his father and by the fact that he had a dream. So he finds himself sold into slavery. Then once in slavery, he gets lied about and thrown into prison. Now, understand, by the time he got put in this pit until the time he gets out of prison, okay, that's 13 years of his life. 13 years, he's in a pit, hated by his brothers. He's in slavery. He's in prison. If you want to talk about somebody who could look at their dreams and say, this probably isn't going to happen, it was was probably Joseph. I mean, 13 years, I mean, I, I have a hard time, you know, waiting 15 minutes at times. But here is a man. He couldn't get much lower than slavery. Couldn't get much worse off than prison. And really, his family lives miles, hundreds of miles away. His dreams were toast. It was not just a quick moment. 
And the truth is, you may feel this exact same feeling that Joseph felt. You may feel some of your dreams have no chance of ever coming to pass. Your marriage isn't quite the dream you thought it would be. Your kids are more of a nightmare than a dream. You haven't progressed in your career like you felt you should have by now. You thought, surely I will be a spiritual giant once I've been in church X amount of years. And you thought by now I should be a prayer warrior. I should be able to fast a week, no problem. But your dreams aren't quite what you thought they'd be. I thought by now I would have started that business. I thought by now we would have gone and done this. We would be so much further along. And you look at your life and you feel like maybe it's just not going to happen. You feel like emotionally or spiritually you're in prison. But this morning I want to bring the defibrillator to your dreams. And tell you, don't let the devil convince you that the dreams that God has given you are dead. Keep praying. Keep believing. Keep pressing. Don't give up on your kids. Don't give up on your marriage. Don't continue to desire the greater things of God. He's got a purpose. He's got a plan. The devil would love for you to feel your dreams are dead, gone, and behind you. That you have no hope and that they are just a thing of your youthful past. He wants you to get exhausted, frustrated, mad at God, mad at your spouse, mad at your children. Just throw in the towel, but don't stop. Your best is yet to come. It may take some work. It may take some perseverance. It may take some long nights of crying in prayer. But in the midst of your darkest nights, don't stop doing what you're doing. Now is not the time to stop coming to church. Now is not the time to stop pushing for prayer with your spouse. Now is not the time to make church optional for your children. Now is not the time to stop praying for that dream to come to pass. But Brendan, what does it matter? My my dream, man, you, you just said it, it's dead. No, it's not. Our timing is not God's timing. Joseph didn't quit in the midst of being lied about and being thrown in prison and forgotten about. And through it all, he saw every single dream come to pass. In fact, because of it, he makes that now famous quote in Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended harm for me, but God, he intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You're walking through some dark moments, and you feel like this is it, but I'm telling you, the devil looks at this moment and tells you, be frustrated, but God's looking a little bit down the road and saying, "Uh uh-uh, not yet, baby, it's not finished. You've got a purpose. Many lives are going to be saved. The devil's trying to harm you, frustrate you. But like Paul said in his letter to the Romans, and we know that all things work together for good, not just for everybody. That's not what Paul said. He said all things work together for them who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. There are about to be some dreams fulfilled, y'all. We are in an exciting place as a church, and some of you have been waiting to see some things that God told you would happen. They're going to happen, and I believe it's about to come to pass. Your dreams aren't dead. Number two, the enemy. 
He'll want to fill you full of passion with the wrong purpose. That's a tactic of the enemy right there. He's going to fill you full of passion and totally distract you from your purpose. In the book of Acts, we're introduced to a man by the name of Saul. Saul was a very prestigious man, a Pharisee from Tarsus. Now understand, Tarsus was a very influential city in Asia Minor. Paul would later refer to himself as being of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. In other words, I'm a big deal, boys. <laughs> and he was passionate. When Jesus ascends into heaven and the apostles are left to preach the gospel of his death, burial, and resurrection, telling all the world about what they needed to do to be saved, this did something inside of Saul. Because in his mind, this was against everything that he had been taught. This was against everything that he now taught. This Jesus they speak of surely could not be the Messiah the Jews had been waiting for. So he felt like these Jews preaching Jesus, saying that Jesus was God, were a bunch of heretics and liars, and they needed to be stopped. And a passion started to burn inside of Saul. And he goes on to get all the paperwork filed out, make sure he has all the authority he needs to make sure anyone preaching this newfound gospel about Jesus can be thrown in jail or prisoned, or killed, full of passion, but the totally wrong purpose. You don't see the enemy fighting Saul very hard at this time in his life. Even though he's full of passion, the enemy's like, yay, this is good. A passionate man that has no idea what he's supposed to do for the kingdom. This is good news for the enemy's kingdom. In fact, later on, Paul would write, Are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped more times without number and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders, they gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea, have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced dangers from rivers and from robbers. I have faced dangers from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have gone often without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. But understand, none of that was written about Mr. Passionate Pharisee. None of that was written about Paul when he had all that prestige, all that passion about killing these these Christians. That wasn't written, no, no, no. That was written about a man that found his passion and his purpose for the kingdom. The enemy's tactic is to get you passionate about the wrong purpose. The enemy would love for you to be more passionate about your job, 
than you are passionate for God's kingdom. More passionate passionate about your kids' ball teams than their spiritual lives. More passionate about the latest American Idol, Bachelor, or Bachelorette than your spouse or your personal walk with God. The devil wants you to be passionate. He doesn't care about your passion. He cares about your purpose. And if he can confuse you about your purpose, then your passion doesn't mean diddly squat. He's just hoping that your passion will still stay misplaced for long enough that you don't care anymore about the things of God. If he can keep you distracted, then he's got you beat. And here's the truth. This one right here, yeah, this one hits home for me. I'm a passionate human. I can get very passionate about very silly things like basketball and the Toronto Raptors. It doesn't take long for my mother-in-law, if I'm watching the game at her house, to go, you care about this? And I'm like, what are you talking, care about this? We're five games away from winning the championship, of course. Like, and I'm jumping up and down in her living room, and she's like, is it almost over yet? Can I watch Andy Griffith now? Like that's, I'm like, where's your passion, woman? <laughs> but the truth is, I'm passionate about it, but that will never never outweigh my passion for the things of God. That's why when I come to church and you see me hopping around up here, do you know what? You don't know what my God's done for me. He saved me. He called me out of darkness. I was on a sinner's road to hell until my God got a hold of me. So yeah, I'm pumped up about Toronto being in the finals, but I'm a whole lot more pumped up about my God and how his gospel, his death, his burial, his resurrection saved me. So you know what? Be passionate. Enjoy things in this world. There's nothing wrong with it, but don't let it outweigh your passion for the things of God. There's people in this room that you get so passionate. You get angry when a certain character dies on a TV show. And then you come to church and you sit there. And it's like, what's going on? Get passionate about the things of God. This matters. Those TV shows are going to come. And then there will be another one that you can get mad about. But this, this lasts forever. It's a tactic of the enemy. Get you distracted about your purpose. Let me say this. I believe every person under the sound of my voice in this room today, you have, a, you, have a, you have a purpose to fulfill for God. You have a purpose that God has placed you on this planet for. You're not here by accident. If you were here by accident, it, none of this would matter. But this matters. Your life matters. You're just going through your day-to-day feeling like, oh, well, you know, church was good Sunday. I wonder what, you know, Revelation Revealed will be like Wednesday. And maybe I'll show up, but depends how hard work is. But the truth is, this matters. You've got a, you've got a purpose. You have a unique skill set. You have a unique ability that you bring to the table. And the enemy of your life hates it. He hates it. Your enemy, think about that. Your enemy's out to get you, to kill you, and you're okay with it at most days. But he's out to stop you, and you've got unique skills, abilities that you bring to the table that I don't bring, that pastor doesn't bring, that other people in leadership serving around here do not bring. But the enemy of your life hates it, and the fact Jesus tells us in John 10 and 10, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And that is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. 
The enemy of your soul does not want you to succeed in your purpose for the kingdom. So maybe there's something you're passionate about that you could turn and use for the kingdom and for his purpose. Maybe there's a passion inside of you that needs to wake up that you've been using for yourself or not selfishly, just, just you enjoy it. Why not turn that and use that for the kingdom? Finally, one last tactic that I want to talk about. The enemy wants to convince you that you do not belong. It can be so easy to look around and feel like I'm inadequate. We can feel like we don't measure up like so-and-so sitting down that aisle. We're not as funny. We're not as charming. Definitely not as spiritual. I don't have what it takes to be the Christian you're saying I can be, Brendan. But here's the truth. None of us truly are. We're called out of darkness. All of us don't have a whole lot to offer, but what we do is we offer it anyways and see what God can do with it. The truth is you belong and it's nothing but a tactic from the enemy to tell you that you don't belong. It goes right back to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5 and 8. That devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to separate you from everybody else. He wants to get a fence in your spirit so that you will distance yourself from others. And when you distance yourself from others, you allow bitterness, hurt, neglect, resentment, or anything else in your spirit, you are finding yourself in a very dangerous spiritual territory. That is ground that the enemy would love to find you on. And that's how lions hunt. They look for the ones that have strayed away from the pack a little bit. So, how do I stay close? It's simple. It's get involved. Look for areas to serve. Get right up in the middle of what is going on in your local church. Don't look for less reasons to get involved. Look for more reasons to get involved. Look for reasons to get your kids involved. Look for areas to get involved as a family. I don't know if you've noticed the landscaping out here. It's absolutely stunning. I know I've showed up, and I'm so thankful because it wasn't me. But the Olivers, all of them, the whole family showed up on a Saturday morning, and they put them out. And then I showed up to, to, to put some holes in the ground, to put some signs out, and I'm so thankful for Sam and for, for Donald because they grabbed that, that hole digger, whatever it was, that post digger, and they threw it down. They said, don't worry, we got this. Boom. And they started to serve. They looked for an opportunity, and they served. Many of you serve on a weekly basis, but don't look for less reasons to serve. Look for more areas to serve. Look for areas that you and yours can get involved. You belong here at LifePoint. There is something for every single person. And if you feel like there's something you offer and we maybe don't have a position for it, bring it to the table. Let us know. Guess what? I know not everyone likes opening that door and shaking hands and smiling. I get it. We're, thank God we're not all the same. But there's something for you to do here. Look for areas to serve. Offense is going to come. People will hurt you. It is, in my opinion, one of the worst things about life. Because typically, it's those that you love and respect and are closest to you 
that usually do the hurting. And sometimes, most times, I know most times around here, it's not on purpose, but on sometimes it can feel like it's on purpose. And it's an intentional. But do you know what the enemy will do? He'll try and drive a wedge between you and those relationships and say, see, you don't belong. You don't belong here. It was just a matter of time before you figure it out. You've been here long enough now, and they know who you are, and see, you don't truly belong. Can I tell you, that's a lie. That's a lie from the devil. That's a tactic from the enemy telling you that you don't have anything to offer, that you're not good enough. If offense hits you, can I tell you, this is one of my favorite uh, illustrations about offense. And I've, I practice this, y'all. I do my best, at least. If offense hits you, if bitterness hits you, act like you just walked into a spider's web. I've never seen somebody walk into a spider's web and then go, oh, this is nice, and just stand there in the spider. No, what do, we, what do you do when you walk into a spider's web? You're like, you start you're, ah, yeah, you're, you turn into like a, a spider ninja. You're like, ah, you're throwing off you. Well, when you get hurt, when bitterness tries to wedge itself into your spirit, act like you just walked into a spider's web. No, that's not going to stick with me. That's not going to stay with me. The enemy would love for that to ruin you, to mess you up, to hold you back, to sit and you would stew in that. Go home and say, oh, that pastor, oh, that saint, oh, that person, oh, man, they don't even know. Man, that was my parking spot. That was my seat. That was, and you're just bitter. Don't allow bitterness in your spirit. Oh, it hurts. Acts 1, 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord. Everyone say one Accord in one place. Everyone say one. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a mighty rushing wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat on each of them. And they were filled, all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. In the midst of their unity, in the midst of their belonging, Jesus filled them with his Spirit and with his power you got to understand, this place, his spirit flows in this place. His power flows in this place. The supernatural happens in this place. And you know why? Because we look to make others belong. We make sure we open up all we can to make sure that people feel comfortable so that the spirit of God can move and do what it needs to do. It's not up to me to save you. That's God's job. But do you know what I got to do? I got to be in prayer. I got to be fasting. I got to be preparing myself so that when I come in here on Sunday and I reach out my hand and I hug on somebody and love on somebody, they feel something that says, okay, this place is a little different. Okay, they're not pushing me away. There's something in the spirit here. There's something here that makes me feel like I can lift my hand a little bit. And they start to open up. And guess what? Because there's a spirit of unity and belonging, the spirit of God can move. Praise God. The fact is, the enemy of your soul hates you and hopes that he can lull you to sleep with every one of these tactics. He's hoping that you just get so frustrated about your dreams that you stop pursuing them. He hopes that you stay so passionate about other things that the purposes of God don't even flick on your radar anymore. And he's hoping that he can get you in those first two areas so badly that you come to church and say, I don't even know if I truly belong there. 
Let's all stand this morning. On the morning of December 7th, 1941, Japan launched a sneak attack on the U.S. Pacific's fleet's base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. As part of a plan to eliminate any potential challenge to Japanese conquest in Asia. The attack, it compelled the United States to enter World War II as a combatant and to wage a costly, bloody struggle to defeat the Japanese Empire. One of the saddest parts of this horrific day of war on the U.S. soil was the United States had missed some obvious signs. U.S. officials overlooked Japanese forces' preparations for war and missed warning signs of the impending attack, including an intercepted December 6th, the day before, Japanese message asking about berthing positions at Pearl Harbor and a radar sighting of a large group of airplanes headed toward Oahu on the morning of December 7th, 1941. There was America asleep. A war raging all around them. Look at the history books. There's a war raging for multiple years, and America's asleep. Well, it's not really affecting us. I mean, it's across the ocean. I mean, let them deal with the Nazis. Let them deal with Germany. Let them deal with Russia and Italy and all the rest of them crazies. And they just stay comfortable in their beds until that fateful morning on December 7th, and everything would change. Everything would change. After this day, America declared war on Japan, and it would not be too long after that they would declare war on Nazi Germany and join the fray of World War II. But one of the more infamous lines of one of the Japanese admirables is this. I fear we have awakened a sleeping giant, and filled him with a terrible resolve. Just over three and a half years later, on a fateful day in February, a picture would be taken of six American soldiers, six American Marines, raising an American flag during the Battle of Iwo Jima. People who were attacked by surprise, attacked in their sleep, In spite of all the signs around them that there's war going on, they were finally attacked. And in spite of all of that, three and a half years later, here they were now claiming victory. Some of you personally may feel the same way. In spite of all the signs going on around you, the enemy of your soul has surprised you with attacks. He's come at you with some of the tactics that I presented today and told you, you do not have what it takes to live this Christian life. You don't belong, your dreams are dead, and you're full of passion but no purpose. Some of you have felt those attacks on your mind. Some of you have felt those attacks in your body. Some of you have felt those attacks in your family. Some of you have felt those attacks on your marriages. But the truth is, wherever those attacks have come from, this morning I believe that those warning signs, although missed, the devil has awoken some giants in this place. 
I feel the enemy of Prairieville, the enemy of Life Point Church, standing and saying, I fear I have awakened a sleeping giant and filled them with a terrible resolve. There's some people here today, you're a giant. Don't stay sleeping anymore. These altars are now open. I want you to move out of your seat. Come to this altar. I want you to lift up your hands. Come with your spouse. Come with your family. But let's make it down to this altar on this Memorial Day and say, God, I'm not staying asleep anymore. The enemy has tried to lull me to that to that place, but I'm going forward. I'm moving ahead. These attacks won't hit me anymore. Not by surprise. That's it. Come on, Life Point. That's it, Life Point. Let that energy build in this place. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were blessed. For more information on our church, Pastor Donovan, or service times, please visit our website at golifepoint.com.